Well, Refuge Church, welcome back to Sunday School. We are starting a new series today about being a living sacrifice. And I was very excited when I opened the book to realize what we would be studying. What a great subject, a topic of Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins and then calling us to sacrificial living. So today we're going to be talking about what is sacrifice. If we're going to be a living sacrifice, we need to understand what that means. And we're going to be talking about that today. Let's go ahead and pray and begin our lesson together. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be together in this way. And I thank you that your word is able to go forth in so many different ways in the the day and age that we live. I know that you are so wonderful and you have such a perfect plan. And we put our trust in you and ask that you would help us today to understand what it is to be a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we have to apply the blood of Jesus, our ultimate sacrifice, to our lives. And so um, our scripture, our focus scripture today can be found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. And that says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, we're going to go back to the Old Testament uh, before we take a deeper look at the scriptures that we just read. But they are really wonderful scriptures that talk about more than just being clean uh, from sin, but the last little portion in verse 14 says that our our conscience is purged from our dead works or from our past to serve the living God. I'm thankful that we serve a God that doesn't just um, forgive us of sins, but he helps to purge our conscience and purge our shame from our past. And I just think that is so freeing and such a wonderful addition to our sins being forgiven. We're going to take a look at a story, very familiar story in the Old Testament. And I'm sure as I begin to read from my notes, you will recognize that story. So go with me now. The smell of roasted lamb still lingered in the air as the Israelites waited in their homes. Waiting for what? They weren't really sure. They had only been told by their elders to roast a lamb and prepare unleavened bread and bitter herbs and to eat the meal, dressed for a journey, staffs in hand, ready to leave in an instant. Strangest of all, they had been told to take the lamb's blood and to smear it on the doorposts of their homes to protect them from the final plague that God was bringing against the Egyptians. And now, as midnight approached and they had done what they were supposed to, they waited. Some of them probably heard sounds and wondered, what's that? As they looked at each other uneasily, they had heard the sound swelling and it was unmistakable. It was the cry of grief coming from the homes of the Egyptians. 
The destroyer had come, the destroyer that had been promised by the Lord when you read Exodus chapter 12. He had warned, he had unleashed the destroying angels to strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians, both man and beast, of of anyone actually that didn't have the blood on the doorpost. The cries grew louder than anything heard in Egypt before, as mothers and fathers clung to their lifeless firstborns and cried out in anguish. Even the palace had cries of grief. Pharaoh, now broken before the Lord, cried out to his servants, Get Moses and get Aaron. And when they arrive, he bursts into the room distraught. Get out of my land, he tells them. All of you, go serve the Lord as you said and take everything you have. Just go. Of course, Moses and Aaron didn't have to rally the Israelites. God had already set them up to be prepared, ready, eaten, already fed with their staffs in their hands and their coats on. And without fully comprehending what was happening, the Israelites rushed about ready to leave. As God said they they would, the Egyptians had given them gold and silver and clothing, anything to get them out of their land as quickly as possible. The great company of Israelites began to move out, joyful but very hardly believing what was happening. They couldn't help but look back at their homes, the center of their lives of slavery, and there it was, the sign of their salvation visible in the moonlight. Dark streaks of blood stained the doorpost of each home. Thank God for the blood. Now, from the first to the to last, the Israelites' deliverance from Egyptian slavery was God's gracious work on their behalf. It is nothing that they could have done. I mean, they had already been in slavery, toiling, and they, they were groaning, the Bible tells us, that they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew, we find in Exodus chapter 2. As with all his labors, God worked out their deliverance according to the counsel of his own will and his plan. It wasn't in a way that anybody expected or knew. And at the right time, at God's time, when a fresh cry of suffering from his people came to him, he heard it. He remembered his covenant with their forefathers. He saw his people suffering and he knew. He knew them. He knew their pain. And he knew that it was time to save them. So to fulfill his plan, God raised up Moses and Aaron to lead his people out of Egypt. Once again, God could have done whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, without the use of humanity. But he continually chooses to use men and women that are willing vessels. And so he chooses Moses and Aaron to lead out Egypt. And the Lord sends them to Pharaoh with a message. Thus saith the Lord, Israel, my son, even my firstborn, I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And here at the very first contact with Pharaoh, there is a promise of that last plague, that their firstborn 
son would be slain. Almost like a trade-off. God is saying, here's Israel, my chosen people, my firstborn, and you've enslaved them and you have, uh, you've taken lives for generations and you have, you have taken of them their strength. And he says, you know, I, I'm going to take your firstborn as you have taken mine. But Pharaoh is unmoved. He says, who is this Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go, he says in Exodus chapter 5. And through ten plagues, Pharaoh comes to know this Lord. The acquaintance leaves his kingdom shattered, and he is holding his firstborn son dead. He is begging Moses and Aaron to get God's firstborn son, Israel, out of his land. Through mighty power and signs, God saved his people. They could not have saved themselves. For 400 years, they proved that they did not have the power or the ability to do that. God had done it all when they finally came out. And yet, and yet, though all the credit goes to God, the Israelites did play a role in their salvation. They had faith in God and in his promise, and they did what God told them to do. They obeyed. They applied the blood to their homes and they left their homes. These are steps they had to take. What ultimately turned the destroyer away when he came to claim the lives of the firstborn um, was not that God had promised salvation, but it was that the Israelites had embraced it. And by faith, went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron that they should do. They were obedient to the word of the Lord. Now this story in Exodus teaches us that there is a relationship between believing God and obeying God. They go hand in hand. You cannot say that you believe without obeying. Can't be done. The great truth we first learned by studying this Old Testament Passover is that deliverance from God's judgment comes only through applying the blood. Nothing else is sufficient and nothing else is required. Since that first Passover, the Jews have celebrated their national deliverance from Egyptian slavery during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even today. And until the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., These festivities included actual sacrificing lambs without blemish on the first evening of the feast. When the Israelites first sacrificed their lambs to secure their deliverance and their descendants later sacrificed to commemorate it. And they, of course, had no idea that their actions foreshadowed, told a story of something that was far greater, something coming that was so much greater. The deliverance from slavery to sin and from God's final judgment on sin that is available to all people through the sacrifice of his son. We as Christians today, we partake in that in in the act the what that was foreshadowing, what the Passover was just a shadow of, we now partake in. And we're going to talk about that because we see that the Passover foreshadowed Jesus ministry. Because Jesus is directly connected with the language and imagery of the Passover all throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, for example, 
describe Jesus' sacrifice in Passover language. And, and, and everyone who was a Jew would have understood this. He said, for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So believers today, we celebrate Passover too. Now, we're not following a Jewish ceremony to remember the Israelites' delivery from slavery to the Egyptians, but spiritually to celebrate a greater Passover and a greater exodus that through Christ we are freed from slavery to sin and will be saved from God's final judgment and wrath through his blood. And again, thank God for the blood. For us, thankfully, this Passover, it can be celebrated any time, any day. You never know when someone is going to have the opportunity and take that step to have a personal Passover. It is not limited to one time a year. It is not limited to just one day of celebration. See, Passover was just one of the sacrifices that foreshadowed the final perfect sacrifice of Jesus to save us from our sins. All the sacrifices that are later given in the law of Moses point toward Christ as well. And there is so much when you begin to read Exodus and Leviticus, when you begin to read the law, there's there's so many details and so many things. And the more you come through them, the more you realize it was just a shadow of the coming of Jesus. They were a shadow of good things to come. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 tells us. And together, all of those books and, and all of that scripture that sometimes is so hard to read and, and even sometimes if we don't look at it correctly can be a little bit overwhelming and boring. All of it together points to the greater work of Christ which actually makes it so exciting. Now, Considering what shadows are, literally what shadows are, why do you think the earlier sacrifices are described as shadows of the good or better things to come in Christ? As as the writer of Hebrews said, it was that this was all a shadow of good things to come. Well, a shadow literally is defined as a figure cast on a surface by what is actually coming. See, that's the Passover. It wasn't that ultimate plan. It wasn't what ultimately was to to be set in motion. But it was just a figure cast to let us know something greater is coming. The Old Testament sacrifices were expressions of God's grace given to maintain God's relationship with his people. But as mere shadow of better things to come, they were in themselves inadequate and were to be offered only until Christ's greater sacrifice could be accomplished. They were ultimately inadequate. It wasn't enough. Hebrews 10 says that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It was never going to be enough. But only human blood from a man who had no sin could do that. Only, as 1 Peter 1.19 tells us, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, would be enough to take our sins. 
Though the Old Testament sacrifices were necessary to maintain that relationship with God and that obedience that God desired under the Old Covenant, they could not compare to the power and effect of Christ's blood in the New Covenant that we live in today. And we already read Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, but again it says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we see, we see very plainly the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices was that they could not purge. They could not clear a person's conscience. That is, they did not truly bring forgiveness or have the power to deliver us from sin. They may have cleansed someone who was ceremonially unclean. And, and you look at all the laws and you see that, you know, you, you, certain things happened or certain things were done. You were, you were unclean and, and you had to make sure that you made the right sacrifice to fix that. And, and this would allow someone to participate again in Israel's worship. But it wouldn't forgive the person. It wouldn't deliver the person. And they would eventually return back to those things that would make them unclean. But the greater sacrifice they foreshadowed, it does forgive and it can deliver. And as a result, it purges our conscience. It purges our conscience. Thank God for the blood. I want to read a scripture from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, the first verse of Isaiah chapter 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to bind up to the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, we recognize these scriptures because these are scriptures Uh, that Jesus would go into the temple and read aloud, proclaiming it about himself, uh, his purpose there. And, And it goes on to say in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion and they shall have everlasting joy. Now this this prophecy it, it is it is it is talking about what Jesus is able to do for us beyond what the blood of bulls and of goats could not do when they when that all that could do was push back that sin what the sacrifice that Jesus gave can do it is able to take our shame and and give us everlasting joy you see we're not just clean from sin We're not just uh, free of sin. We're delivered and our conscience can be made clear so that we don't live in a state of condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn and he made that so plain. He made that so clear. He said it in those many words. I've not come to condemn because people were used to living in in, in condemnation with no freedom and no deliverance from sin. But now... Now that we live in this new covenant, we have that freedom and that liberty from sin. 
And just as the Israelites had to apply the blood of a lamb to their homes to escape judgment, we have to apply the blood of the lamb of God to our lives to be freed from slavery to sin and to escape God's final judgment. Christ shed blood and our faith in him alone, our faith in him alone, our faith in him alone. Yes, I said it three times. Because our faith has to be in him alone. Because that provides a way for us to be saved. We cannot divide our faith. We cannot put some of our faith in Christ and then have a backup plan just in case we're wrong. Because that wouldn't be faith at all, would it? We put our faith in him. And he provides a way for us to be saved. Nothing else is sufficient. And nothing else is required. Do you do that? Do you put your faith in Christ alone? Or do you have other things that you have allowed to become uh, safety nets for you in your faith? What does it mean to apply the blood to our lives? The Israelites literally took a bunch of hyssop and they smeared the blood of a lamb to the doorpost and lentils of their homes. And we, we don't do that. That's not the way that we, we don't physically apply Christ's blood. We spiritually apply the blood of the lamb to our lives by faith. See, applying the blood, it is a metaphor for relying on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice to save us. Because whether you have recognized it or not, you are or you were in slavery as the Israelites were, in bondage the way that they were, never able to save yourself. But you now have the opportunity or have had the opportunity to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life. And that is the only way to be free. It is to personally appropriate what Christ accomplished on the cross. In short, it is to enter into and to continue in a saving relationship with Jesus, the Lamb of God, continuing that relationship. And how do we do this? We hear the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in response, we place our faith entirely in God's Son. We absolutely trust and rely upon Jesus as the sole means of our salvation. We recognize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as Romans tells us. And we turn from all our pitiful attempts to make ourselves right in God's sight. And instead, we turn to Christ and his cross in faith, a faith expressed in repentance and experience in baptism and renewal of the Holy Spirit. At the foot of the cross, we bow giving thanks for the blood that alone can save us. At the foot of the cross, we are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And Romans gives us all those scriptures. Being convinced that only applying the blood saves us and that this is by grace through faith and not of ourselves, Ephesians tells us, it is the gift of God and not the result of any work that I have done. We can boast only in God and rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We have now had the opportunity for a right relationship with God. Thank God for the blood. Faith alone saves us. And what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? How is faith expressed and experienced as we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus? Paul writes this. 
to help us with some answers in Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He says, I'm coming to you by the mercy of God. Now that, that mercy that's been shown to you and to me, to the author of this and to the ones reading it at the time, he says, by the mercy of God, I'm even able to write this by the mercy of God, you're able to read it. And I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The devil in the world would teach us that sacrificing ourselves for the Lord is somehow to miss out on so many great things the world supposedly has to offer. However, the Lamb of God teaches us, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. It is in finding our lives in him that we discover fullness of joy in his presence and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. It is in finding our life in him that we discover that instead of sacrificing and losing out, we have actually gained both true life now and eternal life with him in the age to come. And it is truly our reasonable service. He gives us life abundant. And so many people miss out on it because they are not offering their lives as a living sacrifice. Sometimes I feel like people read the word of God and compartmentalize it as though uh, certain portions are only for those who have uh, entered into full-time ministry or that's what they they want to do or they are pastors or they are preachers. And, the, and so people tend to think, oh, that scripture is just talking about preachers or pastors. But man, if we would look at it, it is every portion it's for me to look at and to read and to apply to my life. I have to be a living sacrifice every day in everything that I do. Then the world in some ways would want us to think that we're missing out. But how can we experience God so that our relationship with him is strikes us as fullness of joy? In Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Jesus told the story of a king who threw a great wedding feast for his son. And you think every, everyone would want to be at the, the king's son's party. But strangely, the king had a hard time filling the wedding hall at first. And he sent his servants to call those who had originally been invited to come to the feast. But for different reasons, they refused or could not attend. The king was angry. But there was still a wedding to be celebrated. And so the king sent out his servants again and instructed them to bring anyone they found, even those not on the list. And so they went throughout the land and gathered many people, good people, bad people, poor people, rich people. They were all brought to the wedding and all were provided with a wedding garment when they arrived. They, they, there was no requirements to come. And the excuse, well, I don't have anything to wear, was taken away because when they got there, a wedding garment was provided. 
and the hall was filled with guests. Music and, and voices filled the hall. The guests feasted on the king's finest food and wine, and they were having a marvelous time. The king was pleased as he observed it. But then something displeased him. There among the crowd in wedding garments stood a man who was instead in regular everyday clothes. The king went to ask him why did he not have on a wedding garment. The, the garment had been provided by the king to make him presentable at the feast. And the only thing that qualified to be him there was that he put on the garment that was required and that was given him. And the man didn't know what to say. So he stood there speechless. The king immediately commanded that he be bound hand and foot and thrown out of the hall. And the king concluded the story. The, the Jesus concluded the story with this. For many are called, but few are chosen. The man had been invited. He had come to the right place, but ultimately he could not and was not allowed to stay because he had not relied on what the king had provided to make him acceptable in his sight. Now we are celebrating our Passover as we await the coming of the Lamb of God, which is soon approaching. And when he comes, we will be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, Revelations 19.7 says. As Christ had promised the apostles when they celebrated their last Passover together, all believers will joyfully drink of the fruit of the vine with him in his Father's kingdom in that day. What a feast the marriage of the Lamb will be. One day the call will come with a mighty trumpet blast that the marriage supper of the Lamb is ready. We will be qualified for the feast. Only if we are covered by the wedding garment of the King, the righteousness that comes to us when we have applied the blood by faith. That man was in the right place, the wedding hall, but that was not enough. He was not covered. On that first Passover night, being in just any house was not enough. It had to be a house covered by the blood. For us, just attending church is not enough. To be in church is not the same as to be in Christ. We must be covered by his blood. So until the lamb comes, let's apply his blood and fix our eyes on him, praying, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for your promises that we can apply to our life. I thank you for your blood that was shed, and I thank you, Lord, that you have given us very clear direction on what you would like us to do and how you would like us to respond to that, that we are no longer slaves, that we are no longer bound by sin or by shame. We thank you for that. Let us move forward today and each day uh, working to apply your blood to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.